The U.S. is calling on other nations in the U.N. Security Council to tell Russia to stop making nuclear threats and to end the horror of its war in Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Putin has a choice to end this conflict. One man chose this war. One man can end it. Because if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. Meantime, pro-Moscow authorities in four Russian-held regions of Ukraine are planning voter referendums on becoming part of Russia starting tomorrow. Those are in the provinces of Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk. Um, here is British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly speaking to the UN Security Council. Our information clearly shows the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense are directing plans to hold sham referenda in uh, the... Ukrainian sovereign ter territory in an attempt to annex those territories. This is, of course, what Russia did back in 2014 with Crimea as well. Meantime, protests are spreading out across Russia over Vladimir Putin's draft order, mobilizing up to 300,000 Russians to join the fight in Ukraine. More than 1,300 Russians were arrested in those demos, according to a human rights group. And lineups apparently have sprung up along Russia's border as men attempt to leave the country, either by car or by plane, in any way they can, to avoid having to go fight in that war. Well, joining me now is Emily Ferris. She's a research fellow in the International Security Studies Department at Royal United Services Institute in London and a specialist in Russian domestic politics. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been quite the day. I think we we're all waiting to see what the reaction internally would be to this mobilization, this partial mobilization. What do you make of it? We've seen stories of people trying to get out of the country and so forth. Um, is there is there a panic going on, do you think? Well, I mean, there's certainly been a very strong reaction domestically. Um, what we've seen is protests pretty much across major cities in Russia. So obviously, uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg as the biggest uh, kind of hubs or, or, or population hubs in Russia will have will have the largest protests uh, most of the time, the more people. Um, but we've also got protests across Siberian places, uh, in places like Yekaterinburg, which is, uh, you know, the capital uh, of the regional capital of the Ural Mountains. Um, and there's been quite a lot of people detained as well by the um, security services. And there are actually also um, suggestions that once people have been detained, they're sent directly to the conscription office. Um, somewhat obviously, you know, de defeating the purpose of those people protesting against that conscription itself. So um, certainly it seems that the authorities are cracking down enormously on, on internal protests. And we also saw movement, or at least we're hearing anecdotally in reports of people heading to the border trying to get out, which is also obviously going to be difficult. Yes, I mean, what, what we've seen is there's been a, a bit of a crash in terms of of uh, websites of flights trying to get out. Um, but at the same time, I think obviously it, it makes for a rather sensationalist news story uh, where you see sort of queues at the border, but actually e even the, the Finnish border agencies have said that actually um, there aren't huge queues at the border of, of people rushing to get out. And although there, there certainly are people that will want to leave, I don't think we can call this yet um, a sort of extensive brain drain in that way. Um, a lot of people did leave Russia um, when the war started. A lot of IT professionals, um, a lot of people who worked in international companies uh, tended to move to places like Armenia and Turkey, uh, and if they could, Europe um, or Israel, given there's a, a visa-free regime between Israel and Russia at the moment. Um, so I think a lot of people did make their move originally, 
Uh, and I think that it, it's more than likely that at the moment there's this kind of panic, um, but I'm sure it's probably going to subside in, in the next few weeks. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the timing, because it felt from the outside, at least, that there had been very little uh, dissent as far as this war was concerned. Things weren't going particularly well of late uh, in eastern Ukraine, around around the south and the east. Why decide now to make this announcement? Why come? Why did the President Putin come out yesterday for the first time to talk about this after things seem to be, they seem to have a fairly good lid on it, at least domestically, and now we've seen these protests again? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. Um, the first is uh, obviously the Ukrainian counteroffensive that happened a few days ago where, where they took back quite a lot of territory. And I think that was seen as a little bit of a weakness on, on the Russian military side. But I would be a bit cautious, I think, in maybe uh, underestimating the Russian military and I think possibly um, you know, too soon thinking that they, they'll be quite easily defeated. Uh, the Russians have made it very clear that they're you know, unfortunately in for the long haul. Um, and this has become a complete existential crisis for Russia. Uh, the kind of rhetoric that, that the political administration is talking in at the moment, which seems almost religious, um, makes it really difficult to, to try to reason um, with them in a sort of diplomatic way um, and to talk about, uh, you know, political engagement, really. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, things like the, uh, the referendums as well um, that are happening at the moment in four different areas across Ukraine, um, this was something that had been discussed uh, for the last few months. And then that talk seemed to have died down a little bit and then they've had to resurrect it again. Um, and I think part of the reason was because they did feel that they needed to, Russia, I mean, uh, needed to kind of suddenly stake its, its official claim over those regions. And there was a little bit of concern, I think, within the Kremlin that Russia was not going far enough. Uh, in pushing into, into Ukraine. And I think Putin was coming under quite a bit of pressure from hardliners within his government and a lot of the more hawkish officials to, to really, you know, not just accept these increments of territory in Eastern Ukraine, but really push as far as he could. So this is, I think, a little bit of a nod to those people uh, for Putin. It's interesting to watch from the outside because one imagines having begun this war, uh, you know, in the winter, that the the objective was regime change, Kiev. It was broad, and now it feels like there, there's almost a struggle going on for territory, most of which was already theirs. I mean, de facto, for for a long time, and whether it was Donetsk or Luhansk in those areas. So, so what exactly is going on inside the Kremlin now? Because whatever the rhetoric you're seeing on TV, clearly. What's happening on the ground seems entirely disassociated with with this sort of with the rhetoric that we're hearing from from, from officials and specifically from state media. Well, I think you've hit on exactly the problem, um, which is the the disparity between strategy and implementation that the Kremlin has. So, as you exactly say, the aims at the beginning were clearly regime change in in Kiev uh, to be replaced by a, a Moscow or pro Moscow entity um, and pretty much take over of the whole of the whole of Ukraine. Uh, and the Russians underestimated, um, they thought that would be a very easy thing to do. It turns out it wasn't. Um, and then they had to scale down their goals. And they suggested that actually the South and the Southeast uh, were, were always very important uh, parts to take over. Part of the reason being, obviously, because they've already captured Crimea. What's really important to them would be the southern uh, bit of Ukraine, that they could create a land bridge um, that would bridge Crimea and mainland Ukraine. Um, but then once that had become really difficult, especially very difficult to take over places like Odessa, 
and they never really managed to get uh, particularly close to it, but it's a really important logistical hub. And if you control the railways um, in, in this part of Europe, then you, you pretty much control huge amounts of transport networks, ferrying food and people and supplies. Um, so that was really uh, an important aim that they didn't manage to do. Um, so then they've now started talking, um, as you say, about the Donbass, which is pretty much um, you know, the two regions in the east, most of which, um, of course, they, they did get in 2015, uh, 2014, 2015. Um, so as Putin said most recently uh, in, in the speech the other day, um, he reiterated the aims of the war were now to take over the Donbass region, um, which seems a massive deviation from, from the beginning, uh, which was, of course, the whole, the whole of the territory. Um, but what we're seeing here is, is on, in terms of what's happening on the ground versus what the Kremlin is talking about, I think there is a bit of a, a culture in, in Russia of not really wanting to, to give bad news to the leader. And some of what, what people have seen as the intelligence failings of the Ukraine war on the Russian side um, is that plenty of people uh, at the the lowest ranks within the Russian military, within the Russian intelligence agencies, knew perfectly well um, that the Ukrainians would uh, resist any kind of Russian attempt to annex the country, knew pretty well what some of them, the really serious military problems the Russians would be likely to encounter given their capabilities, given, uh, yeah, given their capabilities, but they were very unwilling to pass that bad news up the ranks. Um, and it's very difficult within the Russian Ministry of Defense, there's a, a kind of a culture of, of passing that responsibility up the chain. And so what you get at the end for, for Putin and the people closest to him is a rather sanitized version of the truth. And with that, they are making quite major decisions. So obviously the disparity between the, the evidence um, that I think they probably don't really have a lot of access to and the big strategies that they are they are coming up with, you know, the policymakers within the Kremlin, I think those two things are not very well matched. My guest is Emily Ferris. She's a research fellow in the International Security Studies Department at Royal United Services Institute in London, a specialist in Russian domestic politics. Uh, Emily, I mean, we, we've heard a lot of talk of this sort of nuclear saber rattling. You pointed out in a, in a piece that you wrote for Rusi today, that's not new. That the talk of sort of the nuclear option is not new. How worried should we be? Because I was just in London, and people obviously in London are worried because it's close by. I think sometimes over here in North America, perhaps we don't see it as closely as you do. I think it's reasonable to to have a degree of concern when it comes to the kind of threats that Mr. Putin is making. Um, you know, when I say it's not new, it's it's certainly clear that he's gone further in terms of of his very stark rhetoric, saying that this is not a bluff. Um, than he has before. But I think what I what I'd said in, in the piece originally was that um, in, in 2018, Putin had very clearly in a message to the West in, in a state of the nation address exhibited some of Russia's latest, although he said latest, uh, although we're not too sure about those actual capabilities, uh, nuclear weaponry and had warned the West that, that we collectively should be listening to Russia. And what that said to me at the time, I think, was that um, there was a perception in Russia that the West was not really listening to what they see as their national security interests, irrespective of, of whether we see those as in contravention of international law. Um, I think, you know, things like the, the uh, annexation of Crimea um, is, is what Russia kind of sees as part of its national security interests, but obviously we, we see that picture very differently. Um, and that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that Russia does, not at all. Um, and we can certainly point out when Russia does things that are absolutely unacceptable, 
But I think part of this is that we need to look a little bit behind some of the rhetoric that, that Putin is saying and try to understand really what he means. Um, and I think, you know, he made it quite clear at the moment in this speech that even though if we if we look beyond some of the um, the rather aggressive statements that he's made about threatening the use of nuclear weapons, um, he is outlining what he believes to be Russia's national interests. And part of that is the four territories which are due to hold these referenda in the next couple of days. And the really difficult thing, and the, the thing I actually don't have an answer to, is um, if these territories, uh, and it looks highly likely that the referendum will be sort of pushed through, uh, they'll vote in a sort of sham election to join Russia, Russia will consider them Russian territory. And then if there's any kind of uh, pushback from the Ukrainian army, so any incursions, any attempts to take back that Ukrainian territory, the real question is, will Russia consider that to be an attack on Russian territory? And if so, does then that give them the license to respond in a, in a nuclear way? Um, at the moment, I don't think that there is actually appetite within the Kremlin for that kind of uh, zero sum option. Um, it's been discussed around Kremlin circles quite a few times over the past couple of years when tensions between you know, Russia and, and NATO have kind of ratcheted up. Obviously, we're in a very, you know, we're in a wartime footing at the moment. So it's, you know, tensions are running extremely high. But I really do think that within the Kremlin, there isn't a huge amount of appetite for that level of escalation, which I think Russia kind of understands it would probably lose. Yeah, I mean, I, the time I spent reporting in Russia, I always, and this is, you have far more experience than I do, but I always felt there was a disconnect between what the elites are hoping to protect, which is money and power, versus who gets to die in the war, which is not them or their children, it would seem. I gather Dmitry Peskov's child was pranked today into thinking that uh, the army was calling him up and then said there was no way he was going to the front lines. Um, yeah. Where does that, where does that, I guess what I'm curious about, where does that disassociation start to fall apart between what's the decisions that are being made and the ability of that uber super elite in Russia to hang on to power? Because at some point, the divergence will have to be pretty pretty stark. And it feels like that's happening now between the idea of sending people off to war to die, which few, I imagine, want to do for, for Mother Russia, and this, you know, sort of the kind of rhetoric we're seeing coming out of the Kremlin. I mean, part of the problem is that Obviously, we're seeing these protests now. There were protests at the beginning of the war, but in between, the, the repressive legislation in Russia is so effective that it is really difficult for Russians to express their points of view. So, you know, there's been a huge clampdown on what you can say in the media, um, even things on, on, on social media, sharing posts, liking posts. Um, any kind of discussion about the armed forces, for example, there was a new piece of legislation that was brought in just after the war started um, that punishes with imprisonment any kind of talk that in, in, in Russian terms discredits um, the armed forces. And that could be anything, really. These, these pieces of legislation are hugely vague and sweeping on purpose. I mean, there's been quite a lot, several hundred, I think, cases brought under that piece of legislation. So this is not a, you know, to use Putin's phrase, not a bluff. Emily Ferris, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight. Pleasure.